0: Hey friends, this song behind me uh, by Joni James, "Why Don't You Believe Me?" Number one, number one on the Billboard charts for six weeks in 1952. It was written by uh, uh, Lou Douglas, King Laney, and Roy Road, and uh, and it was it was a hit. It was a big hit. And how about those lyrics? Let's uh, let's go back to those lyrics just for a moment. Try try to avoid the song here if we can. <laughs> uh, Click enter again. It will probably show up for you, I think. Or maybe not. (laughs) There we are. Why don't you believe me? It's you I adore. Forever and ever can I promise more. I've told you so often the way that I care. Why don't you believe me? It just isn't fair. In the final verse, how else can I tell you? What more can I do? Why don't you believe me? I love only you. You know, this song here it's a love song, right? It's a love song between between two lovebirds, one who doesn't trust the other and one who's looking for the trust of another. Uh, But interestingly enough, these lyrics that we see today in this love song are what we're going to see playing out in our story in the Gospel of Mark today. Because you see, in our story in the Gospel of Mark, here in Mark 16, we're going to see Multiple people come before the disciples and say, why don't you believe me? I saw Jesus risen. I heard the angels' proclamation. Why don't you believe me? What more can I do? What more can I tell you? I saw Him. I saw Him. The title of my message this morning is, What Will It Take? For you to believe? What will it take for you to believe? And we're going we're gonna to come to this concept here in the message. This message is going to be really in two parts. There's going to be a very long rabbit trail, which I like rabbit trails. You know that. So there's going to be a long rabbit trail in the middle. But we're going to come back to this question. So hang in there. And we're going to come back to this idea of what will it take for you to recognize that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Open your Bibles. Let's take a look at Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse one. And this time, I really do want you to grab a Bible in the pew back in front of you. If you didn't, if you didn't bring one today, grab a Bible because we'll want to uh, take note of something a little bit later on. Mark chapter 16, and we're going to go. We're going to go back a little bit to verse one and read through. Uh, Verse seven to begin with. Mark 161 through seven says this: "And when the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint Jesus. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, "Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us?" But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid Him. But go, tell His disciples and Peter that He is going before you into Galilee, there you will see Him just as He said to you. We covered these verses last week. But I wanted to point out one last element to these particular verses before we move on. And it is the words, Into Galilee. A part of the angel's message to the women who were at the tomb that day, among them, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, Salome, and also uh, Luke notes of a woman named Joanna who we, we, we focused on those women last week. And a part of the message that the angel gave to these women was that Jesus was alive and that He was going before them into Galilee. There they will see Him just as He said to you. Jesus had predicted this. Back in Mark 14, verses 27 and 28, Jesus had told them, After I rise from the dead, we will reunite in Galilee. And most scholars believe that it was in Galilee where the Great Commission was actually given. There was also an appearance in Jerusalem, but that the Great Commission most likely took place in Galilee. Why Galilee? Why did Jesus say, go back to Galilee? Uh, Really, we can only speculate why He chose that particular place to more fully reveal Himself, more fully reveal His new and resurrected state. But I believe, along with uh, other scholars, that the idea of returning to Galilee signifies a fresh start. A fresh start. This is where their ministry began, and this is where they will regather, recommission, regroup for a new and exciting and fresh proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why Galilee? Galilee was the place where it started. It would also be the place where it would start again. Now the women at the tomb, they were commissioned by God through the word of the angel to make Jesus' resurrection known to all. The next verse, verse 8, tells us of their initial reaction to that command. Take a look at verse 8. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They went out, trembling and amazed. And instead of going and proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead, that He was going before them into Galilee, Mark says, and they said nothing, for they were afraid. They had been commanded to share the good news. Jesus had risen, going to Galilee, but they left the scene silent, fearful, afraid. And with these final words... With these final words, in verse 8, Mark concludes his gospel. say, wait a minute. What do you mean Mark concludes his gospel? Do you guys have anything past verse 8 in your Bibles? How many of you have something past verse 8 in your Bibles? Raise your hand. Alright, many of you. I hope most of you. How many of you have nothing past verse 8 in your Bibles? Raise your hand. No one. Interesting. Interesting. Here begins a rabbit trail. Here begins a rabbit trail, friends. Hang, hang there with me. This is very, very interesting stuff. This is informative, but it is really, really good to be aware of. You see, friends, verse 8 in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, is the place where many scholars... Not all, but where many scholars believe that the authentic words of the Gospel of Mark end. You say, what? Take a look at your Bible. What do you notice at the end of verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9? Raise your hand if you have brackets beginning in verse 9. Raise your hand if you have brackets. Alright, a few of you have brackets. Raise your hand if you have an asterisk with maybe a note at the bottom. A few of you have that. Alright. I think more of you should be raising your hands. I don't think you're looking closely enough. You might have footnotes. You might have verses 9 through 20 in italics. You might have brackets around them. You might have a note at the top that indicates you know these, these might be disputed or a note at the bottom that indicates these verses might be disputed. Verses 9 through 20. Pay close attention to those verses in your Bibles. Why? Why? There is disparity among the manuscripts. There is disparity among the Greek New Testament manuscripts with respect to the ending of Mark. Here's what I I mean by that. First, most manuscripts, and MSS is the standard abbreviation for manuscripts. Anytime you see MSS in your Bible or MS, it means manuscript or manuscripts. Most manuscripts of the Greek New Testament Include verses 9 through 20. Most. Most. Some manuscripts conclude the Gospel of Mark at verse 8. And few, very, very few, I might add, few manuscripts contain alternative, shorter endings. If any of you are out there with a new, revised, standard version Bible, an NRSV Bible, uh, you will probably notice in the side column an alternative ending to the Gospel of Mark. that that is very weakly attested to uh, in the manuscript tradition, but nevertheless, they find it uh, somewhat credible. Bottom line, different Bible translations, different groups of scholars, have different takes on how Mark should end. The scholars that translated uh, your Bible, that you have in your lap, made a judgment call. They made a judgment call. They asked themselves the question, do we use the majority of manuscripts to demonstrate what is the authentic ending of Mark? Do we use some other manuscripts that we might deem perhaps more uh, credible? And the decision that they, uh, the, the decision they make to that end is based on how reliable they think the manuscripts are. Now I want to caution you here at this moment. I know many of you have got like a favorite Bible translation, you know, New King James or NIV or NASB. I'm a gung ho, you know, one of the, I, I only like this translation. I want to caution you about comments like these, and I'll give you an example. For instance, in the NIV, you'll notice it says this before verse nine. It says the most reliable early manuscripts do not have Mark 16: 9 through 20. Now, friends. That is what I would, we would call a judgment call. That's a judgment call. That's not a factual claim. That's a matter of opinion. Because as I just said earlier, most manuscripts include verses 9-20. through 20. That is to say, the vast majority of ancient Greek manuscripts, copies of the Gospel of Mark, include it. So what the NIV translators are saying here by this judgment call is they are saying the most reliable manuscripts are not the majority of manuscripts. The NIV translators are saying by this statement the most reliable reliable manuscripts are not the majority of manuscripts. And so, friends, whether it's your NIV, your NASB, your New King James, pay close attention to comments like these. They're judgment calls. They're not factual claims. In fact, the NIV would have been better served to say that we believe that the, the, some manu- that, 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 that the majority of manuscripts are less credible than a few manuscripts that are found in these parts of the world. That would have been more of a factual claim. But this here is a... is a a clear matter of opinion. And there is not consensus here, friends. Uh, It's easy to read a comment like the one behind me and to assume that all Christian scholars agree with it. Not true. In fact, the translators of the the King James Version and of the New King James Version would look at that statement and they would laugh. They would say, we don't believe that. We believe the most reliable manuscripts are the majority of manuscripts. So show great care and concern as you read through your Bibles and pay attention to those footnotes. Now, I want to read briefly verses 9-20 through 20 to get a, just a taste of what we're looking at. I've highlighted some key verses that get the most attention in the debate about authenticity. And I want to make a few closing remarks on this issue and then be done with it. I don't want it to consume us, but I want you to be aware of it. So let's read quickly verses 9-20. through 20. Pay close attention to the highlighted sections. It says this. We'll go back to verse 8 and then we'll get to the disputed verse in verse 9 and following. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that He was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, He appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, He appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen Him after He had risen. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Okay, we read it. We looked very briefly at some of those highlighted sections. Right now, for the for a moment, I want to play uh, the devil's advocate, and I want to consider the evidence that Mark did not write, verses nine through twenty. I want to consider the evidence that Mark did not write, verses nine through twenty. Right now we're not making an opinion on that, we're just considering the evidence. I want you to take note of these things. They're important. First, the evidence that Mark did not write, verses nine through twenty. Number one, Mary Magdalene is introduced as if it were her first appearance in the story. Take a look at verse 9 in your Bible real quick. Read it again. It says, When he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. What's interesting about that, folks, is that Mary Magdalene's already appeared three times prior in the story. In chapter 15, verse 40, 15, verse 47... 16, verse 1. And guess what? In none of those instances is Mary described as such. And so, some scholars say this is really, really peculiar. Why would you only go on to more fully describe someone after having introduced them into the story? Usually, you would expect that description of Mary Magdalene in verse 9 to commence at chapter 15, verse 40. All right, number two, the discussion of speaking in tongues in verse 17 and handling serpents in verse 18 are perhaps better suited for the book of Acts than the Gospel of Mark. What do, what, do, what do the scholars mean by that? They say, well, Jesus, he had never spoken about tongues prior to this, he had never spoken about handling serpents prior to this. Those two items aren't found elsewhere in the Gospels, in, in Matthew and and Luke and John. So why here would he bring up something brand new? And they wonder, is this more of a uh, an extraction from the early church, from the from the book of Acts, and placed into Mark, or is it authentically Mark? Number three, the discussion of surviving the drinking of poison in verse eighteen, is without parallel elsewhere in the Scripture. Some scholars believe this to be very exceptional, that Jesus would speak about drinking a deadly drink and surviving it. Uh, Nowhere else in Scripture is that mentioned. Nowhere is it mentioned in the Bible that someone did that, although there is some church tradition out there. Uh, Some of the early church fathers spoke of people who had these kinds of experiences who would be protected by God. And so this is just a survey, a brief, brief survey Of why it might be that Mark did not write verses 9 through 20. Well, now let's consider the evidence that he did write it. What is the evidence behind the fact that Mark did write verses 9 through 20? First, and this is pretty compelling evidence number one, the vast majority of manuscripts include verses 9 through 20. When I say the vast majority, I mean to say 80 to 90%. 80 to 90% of the Greek translations of the Gospel of Mark, contain verses 9-20. through 20. Pretty good evidence in favor that Mark wrote it. Secondly, it is extremely unlikely that Mark ended his Gospel at verse 8. Notice verse 8. Read it. It says this, "...so they went out quickly, the women did, and fled from the tomb, for they, were, they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." The end. Does that sound like a gospel to you? Good news! They got the revelation of the risen Christ and they told nobody! No. Come on. Come on now. There's got to be something more than verse 8. There's got to be something more beyond verse 8. Surely Mark would not have ended his gospel on that note. Ben Witherington writes this concerning that claim. He says, Mark has carefully, carefully built the case for the women to be valid witnesses to the death, burial, empty tomb, and Easter message. He cannot have wished to undermine this case by finishing with, they fled in terror, saying nothing to anyone. He's right. He's absolutely right. Witherington's words here are almost undeniably true it seems absurd it seems too bizarre that mark would end his gospel at verse eight let's go back to our evidence here in favor of mark writing it let's go to number three while some material in verses nine through twenty is unusual like tongues serpents poisonous drink most of the material found in those verses do find parallels in other gospel writings you know, there's, there's, there's a mention of a Great Commission. Um, there's, uh, uh, there's multiple instances here that are also verified in Matthew, Luke, and John. Uh, the stories that are told, uh, there's a lot of parallels in the other Gospels. So, yeah, there's some unique stuff that kind of causes to think twice, but then there's a lot more that's pretty much in line with the other Gospels. Fourth and finally, Mark begins... Talking about the gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. And so it makes sense that he would end talking about the gospel in verse 15 and verse 20. And that's how Mark ends according to this longer ending in verses 9 through 20. Okay. You've seen the evidence against Mark writing 9 through 20. You've seen it in favor of what are our options? What are our options for understanding the ending of this? precious gospel. Our options are these friends. Number 1, we can say this. Mark wrote it. He wrote verses 9 through 20. It is the authentic ending of the gospel of Mark. We can believe that. That's one option. Option 2. Mark purposefully ended his gospel at verse 8. Later Christians believed the ending to be insufficient and inserted their unique endings. We're talking options here. That is an option. That is a realistic option. Um, Again, I find the ending at verse 8 to be very troublesome. I think it's bizarre. I think it's strange. Some scholars believe this. Two more options. Number three. The authentic ending was lost or damaged after verse 8. And various attempts were made by Christians to restore the ending by drawing on the other Gospels and Acts. For instance, when I roll up, when I'm writing on a piece of paper and I begin to roll it, I roll it from its end, and the end of that paper carries in it the greatest amount of stress. And as I get to the end of the scroll, it starts to uh, well become less stressed. Uh, less agitated. So that when I reopen it, I notice the left side, the beginning of my scroll, is nice and neat, but the end of my scroll is very frayed and very, well, damaged. A lot of scholars believe that's what happened to the Gospel of Mark. When it was rolled, like any scroll, the ending of the scroll was always the most vulnerable. It was always the most vulnerable. And so it was conceivable that Mark did have something past verse 8, but maybe that it got damaged, and so there's some peculiar elements to the end of the the gospel that don't quite sound like Mark and have a couple peculiar things to it, but nevertheless were an attempt by others to restore that ending. Maybe. Fourth and finally, Mark was unable to complete his gospel due to maybe sickness or death. And another writer added verses 9 through 20, I've cross-referenced Deuteronomy 34. You know what happens in Deuteronomy 34? What? Moses dies. Now tell me, how did Moses write Deuteronomy chapter 34? He didn't, right? Who's the author of Deuteronomy? Moses. Who's the author of Deuteronomy chapter 34? Maybe Joshua. (laughs) We don't know. Probably Joshua. My point is this. Moses, obviously considered the the author of Deuteronomy. But chapter 34, the last chapter of the book, he dies. And so clearly, it was accepted within the community of faith for another leader, another representative, to come in Moses' stead and to pen the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And no one questions it. No one questions the ending. No one has a problem with it. no one worries, well, Moses didn't write it, so maybe it's not inspired. We don't, we, don't, we don't make those kinds of questions. We recognize that the community of faith deemed it prudent to speak of the death of their leader. This could have happened with the Gospel of Mark. Here are our four options, friends. Here are our four options. Um, I am not a scholar. I'm a pastor. Uh, I get to be kind of a generalist over all the scripture, all right And so um, my opinion though, for 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 what it's worth and, and again it's it's, worth, uh, it's not worth as much as you might think. Uh, I, I've not studied this issue in great detail. Um, I would say these few things. first, there's no way verse eight is the ending. no way. I reject option two. I think that it's absurd. To assume that Mark ended his gospel with verse eight. Secondly, I say that uh, up until just 130 years ago, verses nine through twenty was the universally recognized ending of the Gospel of Mark. It wasn't until 130 years ago that a couple of scholars by the name of Westcott and Hort started thinking, "Well, maybe maybe it's not authentic. Maybe it's not authentic." Um, i i wonder I, I I caution us to think that the Lord may have led his church astray for nineteen hundred years only to now receive fuller revelation that maybe it wasn't the authentic ending i I find that a little bit hard to believe. I also fear the slippery slope factor if we exclude verses nine through twenty, will we exclude other scriptures later? I wonder if the NIV and the New American Standard and the Net Bible and others that say that verses 9 through 20 aren't authentic, I wonder why they still include them. I wonder why they don't have the courage of their convictions to exclude them. And, uh, but instead, I very rarely see a Bible that ends at verse 8. Very likely, even though they don't believe it, they still include it. Uh, so I, I think that's peculiar. Two more things. I do believe that Mary Magdalene's introduction in verse 9 is very peculiar, friends. It is very un- un- unusual, almost unlikely, that Mark would describe Mary Magdalene in the way that he did at verse 9 of chapter 16, not having done so the three other times prior. That is unusual. That is very unlike Mark. And so, in the end, my assessment in the end, I think options three and four are actually very legitimate options, and I would slightly prefer them to option one. However, I do not believe options three and four compromise the integrity of Scripture any more than Deuteronomy 34 is compromised because someone else finished the book. Let me say that again. Though I prefer options three and four to option one, I do not believe that compromises the integrity of Scripture any more than Deuteronomy 34 is compromised by someone else finishing the book. I consider verses 9-20 through the inspired Word of God, whether Mark wrote it, whether Peter finished it, whether the the community of faith, be it damaged, uh, attempted to restore it, it was the recognized ending of Mark. And we should treat it as such. We should treat it as the inspired Word of God just like we treat the end of Deuteronomy chapter 34 as the inspired Word of God despite the fact that Moses didn't pen those words. Okay. Are we off this rabbit trail? Do we want to get off this rabbit trail? Alright, alright, we're off it. Alright. No more of that. Let's get off this. Not to be consumed with this matter, I want to return to the heart of this story. I want to return to the heart. What can we learn from this? Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8 through 11. It says this, The women, they went out quickly, and they fled from the tomb. They trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when He rose early on the first day of the week, He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom He had cast seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with Him, as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. They did not believe. Mary Magdalene, here is a woman, friends, who had, been pre- who had previously experienced the, the, the darkest of spiritual moments. She had been possessed by demons. Now, she was experiencing the most beautiful spiritual moment. She was face to face with the risen Jesus Christ. Mary Magdalene, frightened by the angel's words, now comforted and encouraged by the appearance of her Lord. And so instead of fear, now she goes out and she tells those who had been with Him as they were mourning and weeping. Who did she tell? The disciples, of course, and those who were with them. But when they heard that He was alive and, and had been seen by her, Mark says they did not believe. Luke 24, verse 11 says they thought her words were like idle tales. Like, like fiction. They didn't believe. The disciples, The disciples didn't believe. Men who had been previously told verbally by Christ, I'm going to suffer... I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to rise again. They had heard those words from the lips of Jesus. I will rise again. And when Mary told them, He rose. They didn't believe. The closest associates of Jesus, the ones who had all the reason to believe, did not believe. This this, friends, should give you hope. To those that you've been witnessing to, to your friends, to your family, to your coworkers, to your neighbors, the people that you've been sharing the Gospel of Jesus Christ with, if they have yet to come to faith, uh, it takes time. It takes time. I'm not suggesting the disciples were not believers, actually. Let me clarify that. They were. I believe they were, the eleven. But they were not believing at this moment in time that Jesus had risen. And friends, that should give us comfort and hope that sometimes it takes a while for our unbelieving friends and family to come around, to come to that realization of who Jesus is, that He is the Son of God, the One who has been raised from the dead. Why didn't the disciples believe her? Maybe it was because uh, she was a woman, and in the first century, the testimony of a woman was not likely to be believed. Maybe it was because of Mary Magdalene's past; uh, they knew her to be a woman who had had some odd spiritual moments, who had experienced great darkness in her life, and they didn't trust her judgment. Maybe it was because they didn't have coffee that morning and they weren't able to process anything she was saying. I don't know why they didn't believe. I don't know. The Scriptures don't necessarily tell us. But they didn't believe her. Look at verse 12 and 13. After that, Jesus appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest. But they did not believe them either. Here we have a, a condensed version of the story in Luke chapter 24 of the two men on the road to Emmaus. Um, one of which was named uh, uh, Cle- Cleopas. And uh, the other one they're unsure of who the identity was. Jesus appears in another form to these two men. Perhaps uh, that could mean as as little as he was uh, disguised. Or it could also mean that... Um, you know, he had an unusual aura about his presence. But it's more likely that he was simply disguised because they didn't recognize him. So Jesus is disguised. He is in another form. He's veiled. And here we have two men, two men, enough to establish true testimony according to the Jewish law. Yet when they go back and tell the disciples, We saw the Lord. They weren't believed either. Neither the personal appearance to Mary Magdalene or the personal appearance to the two men can convince the disciples that Jesus had risen. They were, at this moment in time, unbelieving. These moments, friends, it begs the question what does it take? What does it take for people to believe something like the resurrection of the dead? What does it take for us to believe that God can perform miracles? What does it take for us to believe? Even the disciples, having been told by Jesus he would rise, did not believe he had risen when others told them it was so so we christians you know we've memorized these stories about jesus he's he's healing the sick he's making the lame walk he's healing the blind he's rising from the dead we can often lose sight as we as we remember these familiar stories that we become so accustomed to we can often lose sight of the power of god to perform the miraculous Sometimes we can become so familiar with these stories that we lose sight of the fact that God's healing hand is something we should anticipate. It's something we should expect. We've seen it done in the past. We should expect it to happen again. We should be people who anticipate God to work. And I confess to you, throughout the majority of my early Christian life, though I was quite familiar with Jesus healing the sick, quite familiar with Him giving sight to the blind quite familiar with Him making the lame walk, quite familiar with the idea that He can raise people from the dead, I must confess in my early years of my Christian life, I expected none of those things of God. I expected no miracle, no supernatural, no power of God revealed in us. I felt that, well, that was... These these, these miracles, that was for the Scriptures. And and we're, we're past that, and these are more natural processes now. Shame on me. Shame on me for thinking that way. Shame on me for thinking that God does not perform the miraculous now. Shame on me for thinking that suffering, that sickness, that disease, that heartache, that broken marriages can't be healed by the power of God. Shame on us for marginalizing the power of God. And that's exactly what Jesus does in verse 14. He says, Shame on you. Verse 14, later Jesus appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Shame on you, Jesus said. You've lost sight of the power of God, of the Word of God. I told you this was so. They found themselves wallowing in their own hopelessness, they felt, at the death of Jesus, their their leader, their Savior. They were consumed by this hopelessness, by their suffering, by their pain, by their despair, by their depression. Consumed by it. Unable to even consider the testimonies that God can do the miraculous. And I ask you this day, are you suffering? Are you going through a trial? Are you sick? Are you experiencing pain? Has this hardship so consumed you that you are not even able to consider that God might remedy your situation if you would but ask Him to? Do you even believe He could? What does it take for you to believe? God raised His Son from the dead. God raised His Son from the dead. And if God raised His Son from the dead, He can do all things. All things. The song that we, uh, that we heard this morning, Why Don't You Believe Me? It was a love song, right? A song that uh, was written between one lover asking for the trust of another. Well, now I want to read it to you again, only this time I want you to think of it as God's words to us. Why don't you believe me? It's you I adore. Forever and ever can I promise you more. I've told you so often the way that I care. Why don't you believe me? It just isn't fair. How else can I tell you What more can I do? Why don't you believe me? I love only you. Friends, God is intimately involved in your life. He loves you. He cares for you. He's shown you that love in the miracles we read in Scripture. In the raising of His Son from the dead. And he's asking you, what more can I do that you would trust me for the results? That you would trust me to bring healing? That you would trust me to bring relief? That you would trust me to do the miraculous? What will it take for you to believe? What will it take for you to believe? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we confess as a people that we are often too quick to marginalize your power, to minimize your ability to remedy our situation, our suffering, be it financial, be it a a tough marriage, be it a wayward child, be it a sickness or disease that we battle. We confess, Lord, that we often do not believe that You can remedy our situation. But Father, now we rid ourselves of that faithlessness. We look in Your Word. We see You raised Your Son from the dead. And we remember that You can do all things. Father, remind us daily that You are with us That You love us. That You want to show us Your power if we would only ask for it. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.